my name is Brent. And you know the drill. I'm not going to tell you my last name. I'm not going to tell you where I live. I'll tell you all I can, because you need to know what's going on. You need to know what's happening. But I need to stay alive. And if the Yerks knew who I was, it would be the end of the podcast. Welcome to Fandalites, the uh, weekly podcast where Jenna and I discuss K.A. Applegate's Animorphs books in order. This week we're covering Book 7, The Stranger, and strap in because this is a pretty long summary. Uh, in this book, Marco and Tobias have found another entrance to the Yerk Pool. So the Animorphs attempt another assault on it, nominally with the idea of finding and destroying the Candrona that feeds rays into the pool. Uh, this time they try to sneak in Morphed as roaches and are about to be eaten by a taxon when time freezes and they all demorph, including Tobias. Uh, they're all spoken to by a being called an Elemist, which uh, he's portrayed as an all-powerful, extra-dimensional alien, sort of like Q from Star Trek, but sworn not to directly interfere in the affairs of less evolved races. The Elemist informs them that they're going to lose the war against the Yerks, and offers them the chance to be transplanted to another planet along with their loved ones as a sort of conservation project. They refuse, and the Elemist tells them that they'll get this offer one more time if they survive. So then they're all put back where they were when time froze and have to cut their way out of a taxon and barely manage to escape the Yerk pool, this time without even a Hecate to show for it. Uh, they spend a few days discussing the Elemist's offer, and they take another vote, which the Elemist interrupts by transporting them to the future, where the Yerks have won and humans are entirely controllers. Rachel meets her controller self, who remembers the meeting since it's her past, uh, before they're whisked back to the past. And at this point, Rachel's convinced that their only choice is to take the offer. But the Elemist remains silent and nothing happens. After a day or so, Rachel realizes the Elemist has been trying to indirectly help them, and the trip to the future was an excuse to show them where the Kendrona is. So the Animorphs mount an assault on the office building where it's hidden, and destroy the Candrona by pushing it out a 60th story window. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. This was a dense book. Yeah, there was a lot going on in here. Yeah, there was so much more. This book was so much more rewarding to read than the last book. Uh, I think we both felt like the last book was maybe like filler, like uh, K.A. was buying time so that she could get all of the world building that happens in this book out of the way. Yeah. Yeah, the, so the book opens with Rachel uh, and Cassie, t- well, most mostly Rachel, terrorizing an elephant trainer at a circus. Uh, and I thought that was just really interesting because it, it sort of depicts Rachel as having an emotional connection to elephants because she has morphed elephants so much. Uh, and I think that was an interesting sort of perspective on the long-term effects that morphing have on them. Yeah, she refers to her elephant morph is her elephant. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting, especially given all of the sort of insight we have onto how being morphed has affect, affected Tobias. Yeah. Oh, when, when the Elemis demorphs him, it's Ugh. it's rough. It's heart-wrenching. Uh, like, uh, Rachel surprises him. She runs over to hug him, and he tries to f- be flapping his arms, <laughs> trying to fly away because he's startled. 
Yeah, very funny and also incredibly sad because even though he's now hypothetically without the hawk brain, like subconsciousness, he's still feeling the instincts of being a hawk, even though he's back to being a real boy. Yeah. He also he also refers to his human body as quote my old body rather than like my real body or my original body it's it's my old body this is no longer my body and uh he at one point complains about how weak his human eyes are it's he's really adjusted Uh, i don't think we've run into the word uh nothlet yet but as a nothlet i guess he's (laughs) he's had to make the best of it yeah and i think he has I mean, we also get that moment later. There's a moment where Rachel and Tobias are talking about the future. And Rachel feels really bad because she mentions going to college. Because presumably they they all intend to go to college except for Tobias, whose education will end at 12, 12 years old. <laughs> Not a great time for education to end. You know, he, he enrolled in the school of hard knocks. Well, he, he enrolled in the school of updrifts. <laughs> enrolled in the school of hard hawks <laughs> sad <right? Yeah. laughs> yes absolutely the saddest yeah there's also a moment where rachel suggests that tobias might have forgotten how to express emotion with his human face i mean god that's that's hard that's hard to hear brent i I think in general, I think this book was probably the best written book uh, of the series so far. Yeah, this definitely sets the high watermark and it not just for writing, but also for like visceral food horror, because K.A. comes (laughs) at you hard here uh, when they're all roaches and they all get stuck by a taxon's like big frog like tongue and pulled up. And when they tell the Elemist to, you know, go piss up a rope because they're not going to stop fighting, they end up being swallowed by this taxon and having to, like, demorph inside it. Axe has to cut them out with his half-formed tail. It's... It's rough. And it's also something I've done in a lot of D&D games, which makes me wonder... I must must have learned that from (laughs) K.A. And then we also get, of course, the pretty pretty specifically described uh sequence in which rachel and viser formerly viser three promoted viser one in the future (laughs) tell the animorphs about how they caught tobias and roasted him and ate him with barbecue sauce (laughs) my only question is like kansas city style texas (laughs) st louis style yeah Yeah. it's a good question how vinegary was tobias (laughs) God. I mean, I don't think hawks are good eaten, but also, like, God, K.A., can you not go a single book, a single book without some food horror? No, that's one of the major themes of the Animorphs as a series. Food horror, body horror. Yeah. Just horror. Horror. Yeah, sci-fi horror. Yeah, I would probably, honestly, if there's ever a book in the series where food horror is not an aspect, I will probably be pretty disappointed. <laughs> if there's a book in the series... Where food horror is not an aspect, take a shot. <laughs> uh, also, the Yerks photosynthesize, basically. That was funny. Yeah. I don't have much to add to that, other than I think it's funny that Yerks photosynthesize in order to get nutrients. 
get them them good candrona yeah get them get them raised <laughs> get them raised barbecue sauce so this is the book where we finally finally get to the elemist oh man yeah and at first he's they i guess the the elemist is never really given a gender i keep defaulting to he because i'm a terrible person yeah um we all are <laughs> but the elemist uh is portrayed at first as sort of a, a fae-like creature that's presenting bargains that you know that it's a bad idea to take, but you don't really have a choice. Right. Um, and then falls into this trope of the I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you, all-knowing alien that isn't supposed to violate the Prime Directive, but they figure out a way to do it. Yeah, all these fucking all-powerful alien species having their cake and eating it, too. I mean, I, it's hard to be too upset because he is helping the Animorphs and uh, I'm sort of super into Animorphs winning. So Yeah, well, I mean, I am. I don't yeah. want it to be the end of the podcast. <laughs> but he does definitely, yeah, I think that not touching you is a good way of breaking it down because it really is like, I mean, ha- I he gets really close. He yeah. gets, it's borderline the the involvement that that the elemist has like taking to the future and giving them the insight on what the future is going to be like that's so much information i don't understand how that doesn't violate any any directive they have i guess the idea is that it's directly attempting to convince them to accept his like human preserve offer mm. um but then he doesn't do anything when they all say yeah we've made up our minds we'll we'll take the out and i feel like that's that's gotta be a violation of whatever code the elemists live by because they're a they're species yeah Uh, it's not just this they they call him they call it the elemist because this is the elemist that's interacting with them i suppose yeah and we don't get like a specific name for this creature right um, but maybe maybe for the Illumis, like verbal contracts are non-binding. Maybe <laughs> it has to, like it has to be handshake. <laughs> uh, once again, we get from the Elemist uh, this this idea that Earth is unique in in the universe in its biodiversity. Yeah, which is pretty interesting because the Andalites and the Yerks and the Elemist they've all recognized that there's something special about the amount of species on Earth. Their reaction to it, of course, is varies. Yeah, various degrees of delight and horror. But <laughs> it is it is an interesting. I I I would say environmentalist message: the idea that Earth is overflowing with particularly beautiful and, in some cases, particularly violent and dangerous species. <laughs> Things that will eat each other in horrifying ways. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, the Yerks do seem pretty into that, uh, just not when it's directed at them. It does raise questions about what the Illumist's long game is. Like, because if, is it just that it, this this creature wants to see Earth preserved because they like the diversity? Or is there, I can't, like, I, again, I cannot, cannot remember the life of me, anything that happens in any of the books. So I don't know, but that doesn't, I don't know. I can't I can't trust that quite yet. The impression that I got is that as a species, they're sort of like and I'm, I'm trying to figure out where I've seen this trope before. I, I want to say maybe in DC Comics somewhere uh, that they just go around collecting the last of 
of uh, every species and like keeping them because that's their thing. They're... Yeah, that I I was trying to think of that in the last episode, and I think I referred to it as the collector, which is Marvel Comics. But I looked it up afterwards. It's actually the preserver, and he was in a couple episodes of Batman animated series and Superman animated series. Okay, specifically the very 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 good episode of with Superman and Lobo. <laughs> Okay, all right. That's Where definitely what I'm thinking of then. Yes, for sure. Where it, yeah, it really is this like, I'm going to, you're the last of your species, so I'm going to collect you for my, my preserve, slash, as Tobias calls it, zoo, basically. Right, right. Um, now, this Elemist obviously has different ideas, but that that's sort of the impression that's given, I think, of the, of the species as a whole, is that that's just their bag, their, their otaku. <laughs> they're species otaku yeah they're species otaku <laughs> well then i'm extra glad they didn't go with him <laughs> well they tried yeah they did try i'm glad it didn't work out so let's talk about the elephant in the room haha uh... how in the world is their cover not completely blown after they had to demorph into humans in the middle of the friggin yerk pool yeah i have no clue I, I mean, because I think if it were just them, it, they might have been able to, to like, they've been all covered in goo. They'd be difficult to see what it was. But the fact that they had acts with them, like, no, nobody who sees that and who is a controller is going to say, yep, one Andalite and I guess four half Andalites. <laughs> like, how? You know, it occurs to me, I guess maybe, like, how widespread is knowledge about the limitations of morphine technology? amongst the yurks are you do do you mean like some of them might see no explain yourself okay so like this or three he's definitely gonna know that you can't morph directly from one type of creature to another yeah any of the yurks that are hanging around there in their taxon and human controllers their hork bezier controllers uh, are they gonna know that necessarily is that common knowledge point yeah that's I all mean, I can I don't think. Know. Yeah, I think that that might that might be the case. Because I, I, I don't think I don't think the Yurks know that the Animorphs are human at this point in the series. No. So I think that might be the only thing. I mean, Rachel at one point does say something like, "I don't know what I look like covered in all this horrible taxon ooze," uh, but that seems like a pretty weak lampshade. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a don't think about this too hard move along from K.A., I think. Yeah, which is fair because we are overthinking it. So that's the whole point of this podcast. (laughs) It is is our whole reason for being here. So uh, we'll split the difference. Um, We haven't even talked at all about Rachel's whole subplot, like the B plot to this book. Yeah, I had to leave out the the B plot, the uh, the ham fisted parallel. (laughs) <laughs> to the the choice that the elemist gives them so the whole go ahead go ahead well so like the subplot is that rachel's parents are divorced and her dad who seems to be like not a super great dad i mean he seems like he's trying but the the, the situation at hand is that rachel and her sisters see their dad one week in a month they stay with them and then every other weekend they go out and do some sort of outing which I, is more than a lot of divorced parents, a lot uh, more attention than a lot of divorced parents will give their children, but also does not seem like an adequate amount. But 
uh, Rachel's father has gotten a job in a faraway city and offers to have Rachel come with him to his new new job and new life and new city. So the the B plot to this book is her trying to decide if she wants to abandon the Animorphs and and have like a normal life and be a gymnast and go to college and have a have a happy safe existence. Uh, and then it, as you say it it parallels yeah, maybe a little ham-fisted with the the Illumist's offer to move to a different planet. Uh, uh, they're they're the Animorphs' extra dad, the Illumist. <laughs> and I don't. I mean, it's it's a lot. It's a lot emotionally, and and I think K. A. Applegate writes it pretty convincingly. I think it's kind of awful that her parents, like they're supposed to be twelve years old, twelve thirteen. I think it's weird that her parents are asking her to make that choice because that seems like a really almost cruel thing to do i don't have a response to that (laughs) (laughs) i don't either i I mean it the whole i think it parallels really well and i think the fact that the b plot and the a plot link together so tightly makes this one of the better books uh i mean there is a part towards the end where rachel describes uh going into battle with like eight hork and it's just the four uh, Animorphs and Axe and they're going into battle. They're clearly outnumbered, but uh, Rachel rushes in because her the barrow she has morphed into was old and had bad eyesight. <laughs> so she couldn't see what she was rushing into. And the, the I wrote it down because I thought it was a really uh, pretty impactful quote was Rachel says, I wasn't brave. I was just brave blind and that feels like a line that's going to resonate with this choice in future books this choice that they've decided to stick it out and really fight through the whole the whole war yeah kind of by accident (laughs) yeah i guess they all make the choice to to fall back and and be part of a human zoo but that wasn't ever really a choice and i think to to a certain extent Rachel moving away with her dad wasn't ever really a choice. No, but K.A. Applegate does a, a really good job, I think, of illustrating the the emotional turmoil that that puts her into. Yeah, I think it was maybe the most accurate sort of teenage turmoil that we've seen so far. Like it's the least it's the least alien, but I think the most accurate. It's uh, it's cute. It 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 made me smile a little that the first person she runs to is tobias oh man those two i ship them so hard i i kind of do too and (laughs) i mean rachel does and tobias does as well i think k.a applegate ships them as well and not just because that's some very good tension but i don't it's not i mean i i remember some stuff in some later books that opens a door to that, but I don't think it ever really happens. Well, it, it it never really happened before I sort of fell off the train the first time, and I'm interested to see if it ever does this time. Yeah, we'll see. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't want to spoil stuff that's going to come up in, in additional books that I remember, but uh, we'll see. Yeah, that's the, the downside of uh, of doing this sort of discovery in a podcast is that we can't engage a lot in the community resources. <laughs> yeah <laughs> or we'll spoil ourselves really good ones yeah 
but although speaking about uh, books in the future that we don't want to spoil too bad, I do want to discuss a little bit about the part where they're in the future and they're talking with uh, adult Rachel, Rachel, who's supposed to be like 22 ish in the future mm -hmm. as a Yerk controller. Uh, and also with Visor One, they it's sort of the the linchpin of that scene is the is Visor Three or Visor One says, "Oh, we've discovered you six human animorphs. I mean, five animal humans and and one Andalite." What? Yeah, that's never uh, that that doesn't explain this book. I'm looking for. I'm I'm certain that that it will get explained. I'm yeah, I'm certain too. I feel like K is pretty good about paying off these sorts of hints um when they've happened in the past. I I have I kind of do you remember David? There's like a, a whole three books, I think, around that arc that I Yeah. I didn't remember until we were talking with uh K and Weston. Shout out to K and Weston. Hey uh, <laughs> uh about this and, and K I think brought up David. That's a complete blank spot for me, honestly. Okay. I Okay, then I, I won't get too deep into it, but I, I'll stake my claim here for people who are reading with us or who remember now that my guess is that's a reference to, to David. Um, but we'll, we'll just have to see how that plays out. I think, the, I think that arc is towards the end of the, the teens. I think that's like 18, 19, 20. Or, or, hear me or. out. Yeah. It's a reference to the unnamed protagonist of the Alternomorphs Choose Your Own Adventure series. Oh, fuck. God damn. God. Maybe, God, could it be? That would be amazing, Brent. It really would. I don't know when they were released in comparison to this. Uh, so, the God, I do want to talk through the whole situation with with current teen Rachel having to face adult Yerk-controlled Rachel. Because uh, that was fucking trippy. D do it. What are your thoughts? I just, that it was really trippy. My only note for that moment was, uh, I just wrote down, hey, what the fuck? Because <laughs> that's a, that's, I mean, fascinating. I think it's really interesting that Rachel's Yerk is, seems to be like maybe second in command uh, against Visor 3's current Visor 1 status. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And I mean, it would make sense if she were like a Visor 2, because again, the ability to morph seems like such a clear advantage for a Yurk. But I really regret that we didn't get to see the other Animorphs. Visser 1, nay 3, <laughs> does say that, that he turned all the rest of their bodies over to trusted lieutenants. Yeah. I don't think he meant that as an actual rank. But my note for this scene was that obviously this isn't the real future because Visser 3 used them as hosts instead of eating them. <laughs> In in the correct timeline, Visser Three definitely would have eaten them. That's that's his whole I deal. Mean, yeah, it seems to be the only way he can get off. So I think that's a really good, horrible, horrifying point. Visser Three just horrible, horrible need to eat the animorphs. He's never uh, he's never expressed any interest in utilizing their morphine for the war effort in the past. He's always just been like. Get, gonna numb you down gonna get that good animal flavor and texture and some of that crunch in there Ugh, ugh, so gross what if he made them morph halfway so they were like like a chicken human and then i this has got i got i'm going down a deep hole brent ugh, really upsetting 
<laughs> oh, speaking of upsetting, I, I wrote, I didn't talk to you about this before the show started because I forgot about it because I wrote it on a post-it because I was thinking about this at work. <laughs> and I was thinking about the fact that the Andalites are kind of, when you hear the description of them, sound like an amalgamation of a bunch of different animals. If If somebody morphs into an animal and they get like stuck halfway or they do what axe does which is combine a bunch of different dna strands into a new creature with his human morph like their dna is changing so if you got caught like halfway between a human and wolf morph is your dna now like wolf human i have no idea okay well, let me push, the, without an, an answer there, let's push forward and say, what if the Andalites as a species were an amalgamation? Like, what if they as a species were like, we're going to make the most perfect form we can, and then we're all going to morph into that, that variation. And they're like, okay, well, we need a super sick tail weapon. Um, we need like a hand with like a lot of fingers to be able to poke and hold things. Um, we don't really need mouths. Those are really useless uh, since we can s- s- thought speak. And the fact that they can thought speak, this Ooh. I I am super doubling down on this theory that all of the Andalites are actually just morphs, like they're halfway morphs that they've just decided is going to be their new form. That's a really exciting theory, actually. I'm I love it. I don't think it's accurate, but I really love it. Like the fact that they thought speak and the other creatures can only sp- thought speak while they're morphed. I think was really I think that's pretty much canon proof that this is a true theory. <laughs> well, so my initially I was going to object that we we have no confirmation as of yet that you can actually combine animals of different species uh into a single morph. Yeah. But then you started talking about like freezing halfway and God, that seems so plausible now, especially if they had an estrine doing this and then they, do you breed true if you're stuck halfway between two morphs? I don't know. I think it's an interesting question because ideally if you're moving from one DNA set to the next and that's how morphing works, I don't see why you couldn't create a whole new creature by by sticking yourself halfway between a morph. I mean, let's be real. Morphine technology plays pretty fast and loose with uh, the definition of DNA to begin with. <laughs> yeah. And science in general is pretty, it, the science is, is pretty higgly piggly. <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of all over the place. So is that an existing fan theory? It is now. I don't think it was previously, but I'm obsessed. That is my favorite fan theory now. Yeah, mine too. I, I'm looking forward to finding out all of the instances of the book that support that, that'll take entirely out of context to support it. So um, on page 102 or 103, depending on your edition, Marco says that Rachel is Xena. And in the original, right. she says, I'm not some stupid TV character. And okay. in the update, she says, I'm not some stupid old TV character. <laughs> what? What? That's outrageous. Xena's still relevant? Xena isn't an old... That's... I, I... I object. I strenuously object to that classification. <sighs> it seems completely unnecessary. It does. Yeah. Yes. That does seem like an unnecessary change. Some of the changes they've made have been like, okay, yeah, that's fair. That's something that you would have to update to make this readable by modern audiences. Who would, who, who at Scholastic would fucking dare? Who, especially for an Animorphs book, Animorphs are 
are contemporaries with Xena. So the fact that they are using that opportunity to call Xena old is, without realizing it, a self-burn on the Animorphs. Uh, but no, I mean, I think in the re-releases, the, the conceit was that they were no longer contemporaneous with Xena. <sighs> yeah, I think you're probably right. But that's dumb. I don't care for that. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you, re-releases. OG Animorphs only. <laughs> Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, so speaking of recurring segments. Yeah. My Where Are the Animorphs Located got a huge wrench thrown in it by this mm. book because they drop so many signifiers, like clues yeah. about where they're at. They, they keep mentioning that, well, the EGS Tower and the fact that it's 60 stories high specifically plays mm. a big role in this episode. And they also mention that Tobias's meadow is north of the gardens. So I have ha been having some trouble finding in the uh, Williamsburg, Virginia area. And I, I checked in uh, Norfolk, Newport News, um, like one of our Twitter followers suggested. There aren't 60-story buildings there. The, the tallest building in Williamsburg is 20 stories. Oof. Yeah, that's kind of a big discrepancy. Yeah. So I'm going to have to start looking up and down the East Coast. <laughs> to try and find somewhere that has a building at least in that neighborhood or... And did in 97. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a tall building. Like, it sounds like a pretty big city. They've also got a big arena. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, a lot of cities have big arenas, but to have a lot of tall skyscrapers of that magnitude, that's tricky. So it, at least this book has made me decide definitively that they're fudging their travel times somewhat for offset <laughs> purposes. I mean, that makes sense. They, they, they you know, they, they can't tell us all the details. Right, exactly. I just sort of assumed that they're teenagers and the shit's going to slip through. So yeah. right now I'm, I'm still heartily committed to Southeastern Seaboard, but uh, I'm a little spun about where exactly. So I'm in the process of revisiting that. If you've got a hot take, uh, hit me up, hit us up on Twitter or email us, please, please, because I, I don't want this to end. I don't want this segment to end with me just throwing <laughs> up my hands and going, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, not, not entirely back to the drawing board, not entirely back to square one, but a lot of my progress has been demolished. I'm going to have to change our location on Twitter. <laughs> So the, I mean, there's, God, there's so much that happens in this book. I don't think we'd even be able to go through it all, but I did want to talk through sort of that they're very, they're successful. Like they are wildly successful in that they do seem to destroy the Cadrona Ray machine or the Cadrona Sun, perhaps. I guess, yeah, I guess they just call it the Cadrona. They they destroy the Cadrona. They, they knock it out of a, a 60 story building and it goes pretty, uh, that's, I mean, that's a good way of destroying almost anything. Um, and the Illamist pops in to not help them, but just tell them that they did a really good job and he was so proud of them. <laughs> uh, and that yeah. they, but that the Yerks would have another Cadrona in three weeks, that it was already on their way. But three weeks is a long time. I'm curious as to what you think. I, Rachel specifically mentions that this was a, a heavy blow that they dealt. I, I wonder what you think is going to actually happen to the Yerks in the meantime. Well, they sort of talked about it um, earlier in the book when Axe was discussing what the fallout would be if they could find and destroy the Kendrona. It, they're going to have to ferry all of their controllers up to the mothership in orbit to hit up the Kendrona there. Yeah, but presumably, I mean, that's a an intricate assembly do you think they're going to be able to get them all well so my assumption is they either have to get them up there or 
murder the host. That is exactly, I'm glad you got there, Brent, because that's exactly what I was thinking and exactly what I wrote down. Is it, it really seems like either, either it's just going to be a huge inconvenience, which based on how successful they suggest that this mission was, it doesn't seem like this is just an inconvenience. No, no. And honestly, here's my fan fiction real quick about this. This is the beginning of Hecate's resistance group. Oh, shit. God, yes. Okay, yes. Because they have so many controllers that are going to have to either get taken up the ship or get abandoned, this is a golden yeah. opportunity for some of them to escape. And as we established last episode, Hecate has been compiling a list of known controllers. Once they start like disappearing, she can get in there and start recruiting. Yeah, I think that's a great point. She probably has eyes on uh, a lot of the controllers that might potentially be starved out. She probably knows especially which ones are the uh, least or maybe maybe most vulnerable of the Yurk group and therefore most likely to be abandoned when food is scarce. So I think that's a fucking good point, Brent. She's probably started recruiting, finally. I, I know we were talking about her putting this info together. Last episode, we totally forgot about the fact that like they share memories like there's part of yeah. that yurk's memory that's become her so she has a little more insight even than than we might have thought at the time yeah i mean i assume she's dumping all the names and faces that she remembers from from being a controller into her spreadsheet she definitely knows that they have to go absorb candrona every three days yeah, and she might even know, I mean, I don't know how much the Yurks know about where the food's coming from. Maybe they're like humans and they have no idea. Or maybe they know that the Kadrona is stored in that building. I mean, either is possible. It definitely seems like the sort of news item that would flag on her internet alerts. Alien yeah. falls out of 60-story building followed by giant <laughs> unidentifiable machine. Yeah, yeah, the Hork, uh, a hork vizier gets pitched out the window and that's, I mean, again, it, it's sort of sad when any hork vizier gets attacked because they are also un involuntary hosts. But I, that's, I mean, it's a good marker of some weird shit going on. Sort of pivoting off things that we discussed in the last episode that have a little bit of an update here. We talked about how Andalite society must function when every teenager has a knife attached to them permanently. <laughs> and I think... I'm starting to get the idea that extremely hierarchically is the answer to that question. Because Axe calling Jake Prince has been a running gag for a little bit now, but in this book he has this complete deference to Jake's decision making that I think implies a lot about Andalite culture and how seriously mm. they take hierarchy. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a good point, especially considering that Axe's brother was the prince. So for him to be calling Jake Prince now... If that weren't a really important cultural uh, sort of moray, it's hard to imagine him doing that just because that that was his brother and his brother's dead now. Yeah, and, and it implies that Axe might himself be some sort of royalty. Oh, shit. Yeah, depending on how the, the title Prince passes, I mean, Axe might also be a prince. It never really occurred to yeah, me. Yeah, and he's just immediately saddled up under uh, Jake as war leader and obeys him unquestioningly for the most part. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it does, it does make more sense that, it, yeah, if you have a culture of teens with knives attached to their bodies, uh, if there's a very strict hierarchical structure, they're less likely to use them at random. 
right if they just unquestionably obey their teachers and superiors then yeah that it's it's not going to be nearly as big a problem as it would be if you strap some knives to asshole human teenagers <laughs> and threw them in a junior high yeah especially since uh, twice in this book people lose limbs like there's that part where after they uh, escape the taxon by tearing through its gooey flesh uh a, a human controller like tackles rachel and starts to choke her and i thought it was really funny that rachel's reaction is i i'm like a 12 year old girl what are you doing you're a bad person <laughs> And then Axe chops one of his hands off. <laughs> and later, when she's in her bear morph, uh, they've gone through that, that battle with the hork and and she's like, no, I'm totally fine. I don't need to demorph. And Jake's like, yeah, you're missing a hand. <laughs> and she looks down, and there's just she's missing her left bear claw. It's just a bear nub. It was it's a fucking brutal book. Oh, yeah. That's something else that probably is why this was such a big victory is because you can can you imagine the amount of resources that it diverted uh from the yurks to cover up that shit falling from a 60-story building Ugh. in the middle of town yeah i can only imagine like even 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 at 60 stories uh i'm certain a hork when it lands is going to be pretty liquefied but it's it's still like a a giant yellow green bladed monster like even a liquefied blade monster is a lot of blades to be leaving around on the ground <laughs> right and these are all like weird biological blades like the andalites have which god the andalite tail every time it gets discussed seems more and more like the monomolecular blades from shadow run where they're just so sharp it's a single atom on the edge <laughs> i mean they seem to be they seem to be able to cut through a lot a lot bone and just everything with just a a quick uh, hard to see even it's so fast flick of the tail my favorite scene of this book which i i actually laughed out loud while reading was when rachel and marco and jake are squeezed into the service elevator as a bear a gorilla and a tiger and <laughs> <laughs> they're like just standing around sort of tapping their feet while it goes up 60 stories there's muzak playing they're like so <laughs> got any plans this weekend it's uh, it's perfect uh i i love k applegate so much for throwing this in there because it seems exactly pulled from an action film i, I yeah. could almost hear like the pumping action background and then the elevator closes and it's it's girl from ipanema yeah i watched i rewatched blues brothers last night and just incidentally before rereading this book and uh it, that's i mean it's perfect it's a perfect beautiful beautiful scene <laughs> so good so good yeah this book is a real mix of emotions and it was all really good i think this is probably my favorite book so far i, I agree i agree this is my favorite so far too there's just there's so much going on and it's so well written yeah and i mean there's there's intermingling plots and like the the tension really ratchets up as rachel gets more and more distressed about just everything that's going on well, and rachel's a great pov character anyway she was last time uh in, in yeah. the fluffer mckitty book <laughs> yeah far superior to jake consistently jake. yeah i once again bold choice to make one of his characteristics that he's not good at writing <laughs> yeah. yeah it's not something i would have done but i guess we we just have to trust ka i, I always always trust ka i always trust ka I thought I I kind of 
went back and forth on this, whether or not I thought Cassie's characterization in this book was on point or not. Because I, I, it seems weird to me that she's not more outraged about how the elephants are treated by by the handler the, in the opening scene when they're at the circus. Uh, and I also thought that she would be less likely to go with the Elemist because the Elemist is basically saying, we'll, we'll save you and some other humans for genetic diversity. Y'all are going to fuck and, and create the next generation BTW, that's implied, uh, but it, it, and some other species, but mostly we're going to let Earth go to the Yerks. I thought, I thought it was weird that she was like, yeah, let's do that. So I think the second point, it seems to me like a, an opinion that Cassie would naturally have. We were, we were talking before the show, you mentioned that they specifically, she talks about how the animals that they try to help at the wildlife rescue are so scared and fight so hard because they don't understand that they're being helped. And I mean, her yeah. mom works at a zoo, essentially. Yeah. So she's more than any of them got to be familiar with endangered animals and their situation and the, the benefits of having some set aside that aren't going to get predated yeah preservation and uh, uh yeah environmentalist pre- preservation yeah she seemed to me the most likely to be on board immediately and it, it that's how it played out uh, you're right though about the uh the light eco-terrorism that they were engaging in at the beginning where it's really rachel who's got this emotional connection to elephants and is super outraged and cassie who like was so angry just a few books ago about a deer getting dracon beamed seems yeah. real sanguine about these elephants getting cattle prodded. Yeah, that that seemed like a, a weird choice to me. And maybe maybe I'm just boiling Cassie down to too essential a, a characteristic of loves animals. So I think I think maybe what we see here is that she's very pragmatic and and maybe when the cards are on the uh, on the table, she's more pragmatic than she is devoted to, to animal we- welfare. Or or she at least has a, a longer term view on environmentalism than is necessarily suggested at first. She has been shown in previous books to be one of the more level-headed of the Animorphs. Yeah. Uh, who, who has real deeply thought opinions. Yeah, and I think I mean I think that's an important counterpoint for for her and Rachel's relationship because that's not always necessarily Rachel's forte. Rachel's very action oriented and and let's go, let's do this thing. And Cassie seems very sort of reserved a lot of times. She she wants to think things through and she doesn't want to be overly ambitious with their actions. Yeah, she doesn't want to do something just for the sake of doing something. She wants to make sure that they're doing the correct thing. Yeah, and I think that's I mean that's an important important aspect for team composition i mean of course it also may be as simple as the fact that rachel is obviously going to do something so cassie doesn't <laughs> cassie needs to focus more on making sure that rachel doesn't kill a dude than uh yeah. than on being outraged about the elephant's treatment because that's that's getting addressed yeah that's fair yeah cassie has already stepped back and been like okay rachel's gonna do something about this so i don't have to but also yeah yes rachel might just like kill a dude she did just like toss him yeah yeah and he landed on a 10 it was all fine but i could definitely imagine cassie off to the side in the shadows like oh rachel and and like like rachel's missing time like she doesn't know how she got home but she wanders home also she wanders home barefoot in a leotard and her mom's like is not i think in is not appropriately concerned about her teenage daughter her 12 13 year old daughter wandering home at 9 30 p.m barefoot in a leotard non-responsive and you wonder why they thought it was appropriate to just say hey choose a parent 
Yeah. Yeah. No, you got me. There's there no good parents in the animal. <laughs> it's it's a truism. Every book has food horror and body horror, and there's no good parents in the animorphs. So uh, thanks for listening. That'll be it for this week. If you have anything to say, any hot takes or, or fan theories, uh, hit us up on Twitter at Fandalites. Uh, email us, fandalites at gmail.com. Uh, we have a Tumblr. Fandalites.tumblr.com. Uh, all of those are linked on our page at fandalites.com. Thanks to Justin O'Dell for the use of his theme music for our opening and closing. And remember, next episode is going to be the first Megaso. So that's not book eight. It's Megamorphs number one, The Andalites Gift. And please let me know what you think of my Andalites as an amalgamation species fan theory. God, I'm so into it now. I love it. I love it. All right. See you next week, folks. And remember, nostalgia is a drug. <laughs> <laughs>